Okay, good morning, everybody. Um, today is going to be two parts. Part one is going to be a little bit about Reb Chaim and who he was. There will definitely be some overlap with what we spoke about Friday night, but uh, I want to flesh it out a little bit, discuss it a little more. Uh, usually I try to come very prepared. Now I just have a lot of thoughts in my head, and I'm going to try to have them come out in a coherent uh, way. But if it's a little jump, if I'm jumping around a little bit, you know, I didn't have that much time to prepare the process to think about it, and even as we speak, there's more and more coming out. He's being buried right now. Um, I just saw the live feed a second ago that they just brought the maze to the cemetery. Okay, so we again, we Chaim Kenievsky was born in Pinsk to the stipler of Yaakov Yisrael Kenievsky, who was, as I mentioned Friday night, was the author of the Kihilas Yaakov, which is a very important work, a very important achron in the. Uh, in when one is learning Gemara, he really hardly, hardly a sugya. He doesn't touch, but he doesn't say something on it. And when he says something on it, it's usually something that's important, that's novel, and you know, really, oftentimes very beautiful. By the way, there's a beautiful picture of, of Chaim over here. He had a, you know, the pictures all now are recently. He's a little older, but you look at the picture. He's a little younger. He had a beautiful hat to him. You know, he was a very happy person. You can see. Uh, Chaim, as I said, if they want to write a biography about him, I don't know what there really is to write because he sat. For the last almost 90 years and learned. Maybe 80 years and learned and he learned and he learned and he learned. 17, 18, 19 hours a day. Uh, he learned in a way that would know tremendous hasmada. Yeah, they once said to him, if you're so into learning, why do you go and be a sandif all over Israel? He used to go travel and be a sandif. He said, it's not different to me. I sit in the car, I'm learning. I, I'm, I'm at the bris, I'm learning, and I'm at my house, I'm learning. It's all the same. Now, he wasn't distracted. He, he trained himself not to be distracted by whatever was going on when he was driving, and therefore, it really didn't make a difference whether he was sitting in his house or he was on the road. Um, he was, he just had a tremendous bikiyas, just knew everything. Every year, he would review, every year, he would review Yoshalmi, Bavli, Sifra, Sifri, Mechilto, Shochanarach, Tor, Rambam, Zohar, Tikkune Zohar, the gamut of of, what, of the uh, corpus of, of Judaism, really. In fact, Yeshua Hartman, who wrote the, com- the commented footnotes on the Maharal. I don't know if you've seen the, the blue Maharals. I have one in my office, I believe. Basically, the Maharal writes one line, he'll write three pages of commentary. Trying to footnote the Maharal, the Maharal, again, writes them all over, didn't bring sources. So there was a sort source he was stuck on. So he, he looked in the computer, couldn't find a source for it. He asked, well, no one knew the source. So finally, he said, I'm going to go visit Rafaim. So he traveled to B'nai Brak, and the way you get Reb Chaim was, if you didn't have a meeting with him, is he, his shul was across the street. So he'd come down the stairs, and he'd walk to his shul, and he'd go down. So he was, I mean, I've been there. He was a little older when I was there, so it took him about five minutes to walk across. It was maybe a hundred feet. And as he's walking, one of the reasons it also took a little longer is everyone stopped asking for a bracha, asking questions. So Reb Hartman stops him on the way back from shul, Shafras, to his house. And he says, you know, this is the source. Where is it sourced? And Reb Chaim looks at him and goes... Loba Babli, not in the Babli. Loba Yerushalmi, not in Yerushalmi. Loba Tsefta, Loba Sefri, Loba Mechilta, Loba Midrashim, Loba Zohar, Tikkune Zohar. And he pulled out some really esoteric, abstract so- source. He just knew it. You know, he knew it in a way because he was constantly learning and he always learned, he always reviewed, and he just, he managed, he knew everything. Yeah, he wrote many, many svarim, often in areas of Shas and in Poskim that that were not often written about. He wrote a parish on the Yerushalmi. Who's, who's learning Yerushalmi? Article just finished writing their article Yerushalmi. But again, who's really learning Yerushalmi? He wrote on Derech Amuna, which we've used a lot in Mishnah Yomi, on the 
the uh, laws of Zerubbabel, agricultural laws. Apparently, there's been no, never been a book written on Egla Rufa, that esoteric, strange area of halacha, so he wrote one, because why not? Someone had to write it, so he said to write it. He decided to write it. He really, he covered everything. But again, he was someone who just dedicated his life to learning, and he, he knew so much. Rabbi Ramon from Gush sent out a letter this morning to his seaborer, and he wrote the following story. Rav Chaim once went out to Bris Milo, and someone walks over to him and goes, uh, Rav Chaim, how many times did it say the word Moshe? Is it right, right? Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah. So Rav Chaim told him the number. I don't remember what the exact number was. He didn't write the number here. This actually was in the New York Times at uh, op, um, obituary, which was uh, not a very favorable op-ed, but well, you can't expect more from newspapers. Um, and he, uh, he said, how many times did they were Moshe in the Torah? So he, the guy said a number, and, and, and Rav Chaim said a number. The guy said, it's not correct. Sorry. It's actually two less than what you said. Rav Chaim says, no, 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 it's 97, or 95. The guy says, no, it's 97. So the guy goes, I know, I did a computer search on Barry Lanik 97 times. Rav Chaim looks at him and goes, no. You see, you're open, you said, you typed the word mem shin he, which spells Moshe, but it also spells, the Pasuk in Devarim, it says, v'zeh devar shemitah shesham kol bal masa, or masha, not Moshe, but masha, and then furthermore, v'im yimah v'ayiz miyos Misef. So there's a, two times in the Torah with the mem shin hey comes up. Barilon doesn't know about it. It's a computer. <laughs> I know. So that, that just tells about him. He, that just says about him. Rowan also wrote that he once went to visit the stipler. And he said to the stipler, do you have any aidsos for raising children? The stipler said, yes. You have to daven and cry a lot. And he said, you don't know how much I daven and cried on my son Rechaim. And, uh, and he said, every time I went to Rechaim, you see it. You really saw it. Um, Rechaim was someone who uh, really he just he epitomized, and this is what I said the other night, he epitomized the best of the Haredi world. And as someone, you know, it's not our, it's not our Masora. We, uh, at least, you know, we, we have, we're proud of our Masora, we have a different Masora. Again, there's a lot of overlap, for sure, and, but, you know, you know, from YU, from Rabbi Salavechik, you know, some of myself who may have, who grew up more in that world, who had a certain veneration for Rechaim that I was not necessarily always comfortable with. But still, he, uh, I, he, it's clear, he, you can just recognize he epitomized what it meant to be, you know, a Haredi Jew in, in, the, in, the, mo- in the utmost way. As I said, his punctilious observance to halacha, his, the primacy of Talmud Torah, nothing got in the way of learning. He lived a life, what he called chovos. Not just I'm learning, but he had chovos in learning. It was obligations. Every day he had to finish a certain amount, which is why every year he finished shas. And in fact, he had a yearly schedule. So what happened in a year like this, a leap year? That's when he wrote. That extra month is when he wrote his svar. So that's just, you know, he, 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 just, he, he lived a life we called hobos. Uh, they said one time, he finished, in the middle of the year, he goes, I have to make a siyam. He said, why are you making a siyam? He said, oh, I finished Shas in my dreams. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But I can tell you this much. As someone who spends a lot of time learning, there are times when I also drink Torah. It's usually gibberish. Because... <laughs> I'm not on that level. But you spend your day learning something, you spend your day doing something, that's what you dream about at night. So if I dream gibberish, it makes sense that someone who really is learning dreams Torah. And I think it's Mechaev to all of us that at least one time in our life we should have a dream of Torah. And if we don't, that means we're not learning enough. That means, you know, the Chobos of Chayim to say the amount he learned, 17 hours a day, tells each and every one of us, and again, maybe it's a different world, but we have what to learn. And especially in our seaboard, the, you know, the modern Orthodox seaboard, we do not learn enough. We do not place Torah on the pedestal that the Haredi world puts it on. And yes, we, we have other obligations, and yes, we believe that we, we should be doing other things as well, but we still are not learning enough. Going to Shir once a week is not learning enough. Learning five minutes a day is, is, is 
much as we should be doing it, we could do more and we should do more. And that's, I think, very important and something Rav Chaim would, want, would say to us and something we should know. Um, Rav Chaim, he, uh, again, he just he epitomized this Talmud Torah to this utmost extent. Um, and he also, he, uh, he, he, he sacrificed to live a life that way where you are learning that many hours a day. And again, I said, as I said the other day, he may have been learning 17 hours a day, but then the rest of the day he was spending, he wasn't sleeping much. He was spending, or answering Shilas. He never left a letter unanswered. And you can read this an interesting uh, article by Benjamin Brown. He's a professor in uh, Israel. He wrote a, his magnum opus was on the Chaznish. The Chaznish was the Rukhan's uncle. And they're translating it to English. So soon it'll be out, we can all read it. But he wrote, he wrote a very interesting letter about Rav Chaim's chuvos, which we'll see soon. Um, Rav Chaim never left a letter unanswered. He always, he was always asked them. Oftentimes he'd answer them with his wife. If she would read it to him, he would tell a direct response. It was something just very short and succinct. But that's who he was. And he, um, he sacrificed. To live a life like that, you have to sacrifice. Sacrifice not just monetarily, but also dreams, also aspirations. We, we live in a world where we have certain dreams, and they could be very laudatory. They could be something that we, again... Make, you know, earning a certain social stature, getting a certain job, getting promotion, going on certifications, all good and well, all sanctioned by the Torah. But also to recognize that there's another way to live. And that involves sacrifice. That involves never going on vacation. That involves never getting that certain social stature. That involves sitting in your room. Every single Jewish kid, you know, especially in the, the religious and more right-wing world, knows Rav Chaim's name. He's the equivalent of any celebrity, but he spent his day in a room surrounded by books not caring for the fact that literally his name is quoted right and left. You put his name into the internet, it's quoted right and left. He didn't care. He didn't even know. He was sitting and learning. He was doing the same thing. And that involves sacrifice. That involves a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And that's something, again, as I said Friday night, I really believe it. We have a different Mesorah, and we are proud of our Mesorah, but we have to also sometimes ask if certain decisions and a certain comfortableness we have with our Mesorah because we don't want to take on certain aspects of that rigorous Talmud Torah, that rigorous and punctilious observance of mitzvos and that amount of sacrifice. And there may be an element of that there somewhere which we have to we have to get rid of. And lastly, what I want to say is as follows, and this really comes from Rav Meir Tversky. He said this over at Rev, uh, or, uh, after Chachamavadia passed away. He said, you, you talk about someone on this level who knew this much Torah, who literally dedicated life, who had that amount of patience to sit and learn, who really had it all. He had the brains and he had the patience and he had the family. His father was a, 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 a his father was uh, the stipler, his father, his uncle was the Chasnish, uh, his father in law was of the Yashiv. He had it all. So, how could we relate to that? So, Ravtorsky said two things. One is, Rechaim on his level did not have to put in 17 hour days and then also spend the time to Rafa Seymour. He could have rested a little bit and he still would have been Rechaim Kanievsky. But he didn't. But he didn't. And that's Mechaim to all of us to recognize we can't be complacent even when we know we've reached a certain goal. We've reached our goal. So there's always striving for more. You know, they, they say a story about the rugged shover, who was also a great gone, that someone once asked him, like, how, do you, how often do you, how do you know every single source? He's like, I just saw it yesterday, because you're constantly reviewing and constantly learning and pushing yourself. So in a way, you're, you know everything because you're constantly just seeing everything. So that was one. That's one way we can relate to him. And another way, said Rotorsky, was maybe that's the point. Maybe we can't relate to him. And that's the point. And he taught, said about Chacham Avadi, Chacham Avadi, if you open up his chuvas, you be Omer. And one chuva. Of you be Omer, he knows more Torah and quotes more Torah than your average rabbi will know their entire life. And says, and so says Torsky, maybe that's the point. Before we start tampering with the Mesorah, before we start saying, oh, I think this should change or that should change, we should recognize who the Bali Mesorah are. The people who are transmitting the Mesorah. People on the level of Ravadiosa, people on the level of Rahani who we can never come close to how brilliant they are and have the Hasmad and the dedica- dedication they have. 
And when you realize that, that throughout the ages, it wasn't just them, but you look back and there were Moshe Feinstein, the Chazanish, you go back a little further, we, we, the Chesam Sofer, you go back a little further, the Rishonim, the Rashba, the Ritfa, the, the Rif, the Tanam Amram, when you realize, like, yeah, if we can't relate to Rav Chaim, Tavachom, we couldn't relate to the Rashba. Tavachom, we couldn't relate to the Rambam. So before we start playing around and start saying, asking questions, and saying, oh, because I went on Google and I, and I learned a little bit, or you don't need Google, I don't, it's not you Google, I sit and learn a lot of the day. Even myself, before I said, oh, I, th- I, went, I learned the Sugyo, and I went to the Gemara, and I went to the Rishonim, and I went to the Achronim, oh, I think I could, uh, I have a Chiddush here, and this can be changed. This, take a moment and realize, if I can't relate to Rav Chaim, I can't relate to the Masorim that way. And maybe that's important to recognize. To recognize, says Rotorsky, that as much as we can learn from Chaim, he's also on a pedestal in a way because we can never come to his brilliance because none of us have it. So I guess just to leave off, to leave off before we start part two of this year, is just to recognize what we lost, to recognize that he was a tremendous, tremendous Tom Chacham. Someone who could literally put his head down and say, Loba Babli, Loba Yerushalmi, and tell you where it was. And to also learn, to learn that perhaps we should also, where can we sacrifice a little bit? To learn also that we can also up our observance, and lastly, I think most importantly, to recognize that our level of Talmud Torah, especially in our community, is nowhere where it should be, and we still can be learning, and still can be working, and still can be involved in all the things we want to be involved in, but learn more. It's just a matter of priority. And that's, that's what I want to say about Rechaim, and that should be on it, and Okay. Are we up with time? Okay. Good. Turn this off over here. Okay, so what I, what I want to do today in terms of the Shalas and Shuvas part of this year was look at some of the Shuvas that Rechaim, Rechaim wrote. Now, here's the thing. Looking at the Shuvas that wrote from Rechaim will not do him justice because, as I said, he was a, he was a taciturn. He barely said much. He said very little. We'll see from the Shuvas. They're all one-word answers. Yes, I did cherry-pick and picked out the ones that are one-word answers, but that's the bulk of them. One word, one line. And if you really want to see what he did, what he added, so you have to look at his parish there, Famuno, where he wrote a Mishnah like commentary on, on Zroy. You have to look at his other perushim, you know, his, his, his parish and chast on Bavli, on Yishami, excuse me. He really wrote a tremendous amount. But his styles and Jubas, he was of the style to write very little, but I figured it'd be fun to go through a couple of them. So, again, page one is the picture of Chaim. Again, I'm not as prepared as usual. I'm sorry because this is a little last minute. I figured the best way to do this was to talk a little bit about each topic and then see what Chaim had to say. So I opened up this Shiles and Jubas from Chaim, again, written by one of his Tamidim, so he held this pass up. What is he going to help? Let's talk a little about it. So the first truth is on Tainus Pachoros. What is Tainus Pachoros? Anyone, anyone familiar? Anyone in Pachor here? All right, what's Tainus Pachoros? Exactly, and why? So if you look in the Yerushalmi, it's not found in the Bible, the Yerushalmi records where Yehudah Nasi used to fast on Erev Pesach, and the Gemara says, ah, it wasn't because of fast, but Chorus, because rather, he wanted to make sure that if he ate, if he knew if he ate, he wouldn't be hungry to eat matzos. So he used to fast. Hmm. However, the Mesef, it's found in the so from this first source that, based, and the Torah quotes it, that based on the fact that all the, all the Bechorim and Bechoros spared, therefore we fat, they, they fast. Which means, by the way, it should, it's not just the men, it's the women as well, because we're commemorating the nace. So then both men and women should fast. There's a big discussion in the postgame. What about children? The parents fast with their children. What if you have the fathers of Bechar and the kids of Bechar? So maybe the mothers should fast in that. That's a discussion that's brought down. What's interesting is that Hassam Sofer asked this question, Hassam Sofer last week in Parish on Jas, because I don't understand. Every other time we commemorate a nace, what do we do? Right? They tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. 
Why is this first time they tried, you know, we were spared, a great day's happened, let's fast. Well, it's not they tried to kill us this time, it's a Kaddish Baruch who spared us because he killed all the other persons. I mean, Hashem's always hands and everything also. Yeah. So Sam Sofer says as follows. He says, actually, it's not necessarily a commemoration of the fact we were saved, but rather we are, we are replicating what all the Bechorim did in, in Mitzrayim. He said, that, 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 that day, the day before Tainas Bechorim, as he said, must be all the Bechorim, Bechorim fasted in order to be spared. So we're commemorating that. So that's what he says. Mm-hmm. You can also like Tainas Esther. That's actually talking to the point. Like Tainas Esther. And just like Tainas Esther, you have, you have the Suda afterwards. That's, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Now you've said that, actually. It reminds me that there's a rug as a homahala where he says Tainas Esther is actually this dual aspect of Purim. I should get sidetracked here, but I'll say either way. So if you think about a Purim, there was a happy time. There's also a very sad time. And because he wants to argue Tainas Esther is actually part of the Purim experience. That, that it's, we're commemorating both that aspects of Purim, both the, the lead up to it, where we're, we're sitting in sackcloth and ashes, and then, and then the Purim itself. So actually, it's part of the whole Purim experience. Okay. Um, the question is if, it's, if that's true, if that's true that it's about commemorating what they did, so what about someone who wasn't there? I.e., a ger. Should a ger fast? So if you look at the first source, the question asked Rechaim, Ger Tzedek should Bachar Aviv, Hanachim Tzarek Lazan, if a ger Tzedek whose father or his father isn't Jewish, does he have to fast? Says Rechaim, no, because he wasn't saved. Others say, no, you know, once you're, again, we discussed by the Rambam, once you're part of the, uh, the uh, uh, you join the Jewish people, you take on all the Zorah, but Rechaim said, no, because it's really just commemorating the fast, and maybe so much so, it's not that all Kali Saul's fasting, only the Bechorahs are fasting, so it's something particularly unique to the Bechorah, and those who are there in Mitzrayim. I fast in Okay. <laughs> okay, very good. Is it, is it specifically, like, the firstborn of a non-Jew, or what, like, what if that, his, the, his son, a dear yeah, so that's, I thought it was a little funny, but like, yeah, I, I, I assume you'd have to. No one said otherwise. So that's why I thought it was a little funny. Um, but yeah, that's what Chaim said. Could you also argue that um, all Gerim are considered um, sons of Abba? Yes, that's, that, that, so that's what I said. We have that argument from we saw from the round from a couple weeks ago, so that's why others disagree. Um, but what is interesting is the post can treat this like a regular fast. Wait, what are you saying? I meant, since they're all sons of Abraham. I don't know. I don't, okay, I hear. Um, the the post can treat this like a regular fast, meaning if one is is gonna fast, anenu, you should you should lay like it's mamish a regular fast, and so much so it seems like you know there are chashulchos. It's like I don't know why people aren't fasting. It must be this generation is very very weak. You should fast. Although the Mishnah Brewer does say, excuse me, the Shochanah says in Siv Gimel, if people are not going to be able to keep the mitzvahs of the night properly. So then they should certainly find a way to break the fast because you have a minnow versus you know, the rice, the one chiv the rice of the year to actually eat matzah. Um, but what's interesting is that, again, people, you should fast. However, the minute they develop, you don't fast. What do we do? We make some sort of sunnah mitzvah. We have a siyam. What happened to the siyam? And again, the poets discuss in this interesting place what can make, this is where they discuss it. What can make a siyam on? Can it be in a book of Tanakh? Can it be a book of a, a Gemara? Do you have to know the Gemara? Can you just read it really quickly? All these discussions are brought up. Do you have to make it yourself? Can you be part of the siyam? So all these discussions are brought up, but the question is as follows. If this is Mamash a regular fast, right? Think about it. Kind of Tibu, you're laying by Yechal. You're saying Anenu. So then, what is going on here? So then, why are we trying to get a way out of it? More than that, the halacha is with the regular Tainas Tibur. If you break your fast, so then you broke your fast, you should go back and fast again. Let's say you forget it, the Tainas, you eat something, so go back and continue fasting. Or make it up some other time. What is it about, what is it about this Tainas 
that we say once you break it, you, you, you join the Suda's mitzvah, now all good and well, you don't have to fast the rest of the day. So here Rav Chaim had a finish. And this is actually not found in his Shalza Jewish, but this is found in, his, in the Maisa, the Maisa Rabbi, Archas Rabbeinu, excuse me, which is a six or seven volume work dedicated to the life of the Chaznish, his uncle. Sipra Hagonor Gershon Edelstein, who is the Rashiva Panovich, who just gave the Hespital to the Vayat a few moments ago. His father came to the Chaznish. He basically asked our question that on a regular fast, if you break your fast, so then you still have to continue fasting once you finish eating. So why uh, we say on Tainas Bechoros, once you break your fast to join the Suda on the same Sechus um, Tamid or whatever you're finishing, you can now uh, you can eat the rest of the day. Etc. And the basically says, and I think his understanding is, that when you make a scene, you're happy the rest of the day. You finish something learning, you're happy the rest of the day, and therefore, and therefore you don't have to finish it up. But again, why? Why? This is what Rav Chaim says. Which is kind of awkward to write Shlita in a book. But because uh, these things happen. What is different about Tainas Bechoros from all the Tainases? Because most Tainas if you eat them, the time you eat the Tainas still goes on. It says as follows. Most Tainuses, there's Tzvaidina. There's an obligation to fast, and there's a prohibition to eat. And therefore, you have an obligation to fast. If you break that, you still have a prohibition to eat. But for some reason, they instituted Tainus Bechoros. They only made a prohibition, they only made, excuse me, an obligation to fast. There's no prohibition from eating. Which means if you have a head there now to break your tinus, I guess Suda's mitzvah, well now you can continue eating the rest of the day. That's what Rechaim wanted to say. Which is an interesting idea. Why would they do that? I speculated perhaps because of what the Shofar Darach said to Siv Gimel. Again, this is all a minhag. And what happens if you know by fasting you're not going to stay up for the Seder, so then you're you just mivatel multiple mitzvahs asses. So therefore they made a lower level tinus. That was one idea from Rechaim Kniyesu. Any questions, comments, aras? Okay, let's do a couple more. Oh, by the way, yeah, another question. I put it there in your test. What about if you heard a him before Shabbos, so you're not allowed to eat? So you're not going to eat things, so then can you, can you then eat after Shabbos? He said, yeah, not a problem. Yeah, you could. Again, very short success. Challenge number two, Bittu Chomets. Why do we do Bittu Chomets? Anyone know? We say a lot of interesting things. It's actually a really fun statement if you actually learn through it. But yeah, anyone know? Can you buy some pesach? I'll cover every basic fan, right? So then, why do we do? All right, such a harsh, such a harsh mitzvah. Probably all basis. If that's true, so why are we looking for chametz? To cover every base. See, so, so, so you're gonna see. You're, uh, we have Tosfos sitting over there. That's Tosfos sheet, though, right? We one can make an argument. Once you say that the chametz is offered to Aris, no longer mine, so you're now over by your rabbi Yamatza. It's not in your possession anymore, and therefore there's no need to do no no need to look for it. Don't you look for it so that you get the the the, the mitzvah, the the bechiyuv to clean for Pesach, to get ready for Pesach, and then you do bittul after you look for it, just so that you cover like so you're mitzvah, just I, the same way you make brachas. If you make a bracha on food, you make as many as you can, not just one to cover it all and move on. Well, I, that, I'm going to argue with that statement, but yeah, you're you're talking about a different idea. This idea of tashbisu that besides the iser to have chametz in your house, there's also a mitzvah near Pesach. Destroy chametz so much so the mitzvah says if you have no chametz, go out buy chametz to destroy it. 
is a wild Kiddush. We've had to do that before when you forget. Like, oh, I don't know if we pass in that way. But again, so basically, why do we do Bittu? If we do Bittu, why do we look for Hamid? So it's kind of what we say in the room. Rashi says, because you might still be over by your own, by your matzah that you have in your house. It's a bit of a Kiddush. Tosfos says, as, as we have in the corner, Yair said, Hamid's is unique. All year round, you can eat your pizza. Suddenly, it becomes totally usher to you, so it's very possible you'll forget about it. And if we say, go search and destroy it, and then, you know, even though you're about to live. The rod, I think, is my favorite shot. Yeah. The other issue I heard is that if, if you're just relying on Mabato, that's just as basically the thought. Oh, I don't want it anymore. You can just as easily, since it's something that's in your house all the time, and you eat all the time, and you're permitted all the time, except for this one week, you can just as easily, during Pesach, have a random thought, I wonder if I should have that pizza that's in the freezer. <laughs> and, there, and, and at that point, you can rebuttal again, but at the same thing, you're going to be all over during those. So that's a little more complicated, only because the, once it's Asr Bahana, you can no longer reacquire it. But then again, the Gemara and, and Safim says that there are two things that are not in your possession, but the Chazam make it look like it's, it's if in your possession, Chamas is one of them. So let's, let's hold that thought. But Tosfa says your idea that again, you're not used to, you'll, you'll see the Chamas. It's not, you revatal it, but like, you forget that and you take a bite out of it. The Ron says, my favorite shot. What's going to happen? You see that beautiful Danish sitting there, that good Danish with the chocolate oozing out. Everything is batil, the dirt to me, but not that one. I'm not getting rid of that so fast. Which is also, um, which is also that there are those who want to say, perhaps you're, gonna, you, you're not going to have full kavana. Meaning, yeah, it's really, it's really disgusting to me. Uh, you know, sitting there, you're not going to want to. And lastly, their advaz says something interesting. He's like, chametz in more in machshava is compared to the Yitzhahara. We'll discuss more about that in the coming weeks over Pesach. And the same we want to eliminate the every iota and little bit of crumb of the Yitzhahara from our life, we want to do the same thing with the chametz. So the question that's asked is, once you're doing bedikas chametz, you're looking for chametz, how do you do it? The Gemara says you do it on the night of the 14th. Or in this case means night. The Gemara goes to two dots to explain why it means night. And one of the reasons is the Gemara says, the Gemara wants to talk in a nice Lashon, and to say night is not as nice as a day. Day is positive, not the mystic. We like to speak the Lashon Saginar. We like to speak in a positive way. And the Gemara says you have to use a candle. You can't use a, a torch. Why? Because if it's flickering a lot, A, the light's not as strong, because it's kind of moving around. But also you don't want to put it into the crevices because you want to burn your house down. Something you shouldn't do. But also, the Gemara says you do it at night for two reasons. One is because night people are normally at home, and also at night, when you have one light, you're more focused. You're more focused because you know exactly where the light's pointing. Question, therefore, posted or discussed is, what about if you have electric lights on? Do you have to turn them off in order to use a more focused flame? Says electric. Do you have to turn off the electric light at the time that you are looking for What does he say? Ein al Eno, sorry, you don't need to. The briskerov was Mahmer too, and anyone knows there's actually not a rivalry, but brisk was, is always Yerushalayim. Erchayim, that world is, is B'nai Brak. So it's like two competing uh, approaches to a lot of things in life, Derek Halim and etc. The briskerov said he should, Erchayim said not to. Ravashra has a tshuva, and this Rosh Hashanah has a tshuva, and he says, in fact, you shouldn't turn it off, it's even better. You have a light on, and you have a flashlight, you'll see more comics. Okay, should we do one more, or do you want to stop here? One more, one more. Okay, fine. <laughs> Lastly. This is interesting. We can discuss this at length another time. One of the things we do on Pesach is we sell our chametz. It's kind of funny. It's like a harama. It's a legal fiction. I'm, hi, I'm selling you my chametz, but I'm buying it back after Pesach. If chametz is so bad, how can you do that? And interestingly, you really only, minute, you only found this really coming, the coast discussing this once the Jews got into the liquor businesses. 
and started selling liquor and got involved in beer. So then suddenly, the, you know, if you have a couple uh, Danishes in your freezer, so okay, you can get rid of them. It be hard. Good Danish, but it's not so hard. Once you, were, you have thousands of dollars in merchandise, it's much harder. So the post start discussing this idea of Bechiris Chametz, where I essentially go to a non-Jew, I'm selling you my Chametz. After Pesach, you'll sell it back to me. Why is that true? Because the Machlokus in the Gemara, Chametz all of a Pesach, Chametz that you had in your possession over Pesach, is Oster Bahana. You're, you're not allowed to use it. Three of Machlokus, some say it's not Oster Bahana. One opinion is Daraisa, one opinion is Darabana, and it's a Kanas. It's Darabana gave a rabbinic enactment a, to punish you for having it in your house, and therefore West probably the way we Paskin. Yeah? But I, I remember every once in a while you hear that it's not like a, fa- a legal fallacy that people, there are instances where the people actually say, I want to buy all the hummets. Yeah. In smaller communities. Nah. And also, let's be honest, if the rabbi's selling a million dollars worth of hummets to the shul custodian, well, most probably you can't, you can't buy it back. No, but if it's a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. Which is why, by the way, we're Willig. Mordechai Willig, he always sold to this guy, John Brown, who passed away last year. And every year, John Brown said, John Brown, can you afford to buy whatever it was, X million amount of dollars? And John Brown would say, uh, not in liquid cash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he had to take credit cards. He had to shop for many years. He had to shop his boy. He was Russian, and he was like, two other lights. And every year, everyone sold him, sold him the, 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 their, uh, their, uh, their comments. And then when he passed away, his mother came around and turned out to be Jewish. Come to Israel. <laughs> so that you have to always be careful about not to sell to a Jew, because then you're in big trouble. So, the question is, where does this idea of this, this legal fiction, we'll call it, come from? So the Gemara, the, 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 uh, the Sefta records a case, there was a Jew on a boat, and suddenly he realized, oh, you pay Pesach's coming, I, don't, I, I have all this comments in my house, what am I going to do? He turns to a non next to him, goes, buy my comments, I'll buy back from after Pesach. The problem with this case, says some of the post is, this guy was forced into the corner. He had no way to destroy his comments. So maybe, unless you're forced into the corner, you can't do it. In fact, the Ritva says... You can sell your chametz, but you can't do it every year. At the beginning of Paul Shaw, he's like, if you sell it every year, so then you're showing it's not real. You do it once in a while, so then maybe Taka, like, you can argue that it's real. However, the Hassam Sofer said no. Because when I sell this non-Jew my chametz, he could come into my property and start eating if he wants to. It's in Barset. Because he has that ability, it's a real sale, even though he's going to sell back after Pesach. Rosalvech quoted Bishem the Gra, you shouldn't sell real chametz. Chametz Gomer, he was mocked for not to sell, because he said again, maybe these sort of haramas only work on a level of the Rabbana, but not on a level of the Raisa. However, Shechter comes along and ar- argues in a long article in Ikfei Atzon, his, his second safer, you know, his farm is first one's Eretz Face, that's Aleph, second one's Ikfei Atzon, Beis, third one's Gino's Egos, fourth one's Diverso from Aleph, Beis, Gimel Dalet. Hopefully he has a tough one day. But uh, he argues that there's a difference between doing a harama, which is a legal fiction when it comes to avoiding an Isser, versus avoiding a mitzvah. The toast was the beginning of Bechorah says if one has a Bechar, Bechar is the firstborn animal, there's a whole process one has to do to pity him at the Chamar. In order to get out of it, Tosa says, just make and uh, sell the animal or make a, one of the partners in the ownership of the animal a non Jew. If you do that, then he doesn't have it, there's no pity at the Chamar. And why should you do that? So Tosa because you're going to end up running into all these air issues of you're not allowed to have Hana from the, from the, uh, from the, 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 the shearings of, the, of, this, of this animal, and you run into all these sort of, an, sorry, it's a pity of Bechar, run into all sorts of issues, Isurim. So to avoid an Isser, you can sell it. To avoid an Isser on, on Pesach, you can sell it. Although Rav says, therefore, you should keep a little bit so you can be kind of the mitzvah's assay of Tashbisu. Also, it's where Rav Shefton says maybe a problem with the head to Mechira. Because you're selling land to avoid a mitzvah, perhaps, of, of, tashbi, of, of letting the land lay foul. Says Rav Chaim, they said to him, now that we know this, it's all legal fiction, maybe it's, it's, it's just a level of the rice that might not work, 
we run into all these issues. It seems like Bidiyev, you have this Ritva. So, is there room to be extra hidden, to be extra careful, to add on an extra hidden, an extra level of observance, and refrain from eating hummus that was sold to a non Jew on Pesach? Because again, the Ritva is a legal fiction, it's a loophole, and what does he say? Low. No. <laughs> Okay, so that is just three chewers when it comes to a Pesach from a Chaim. You see, by the way, it may look like one word, but we just spent five minutes. You really spend hours behind each one of these one words because this was just, the man was really, he was a goat. He was a Godel Hadar, someone who, it's a real loss to Kalal Yisrael. So as Neshama Shabbat and Aliyah, we should all take something, take one thing. I think a little extra learning, a little extra careful observance with mitzvos and incorporate that into our own lives. I wish everyone a wonderful week.